Welcome to the Direct Farm Podcast, the weekly listen for farm selling direct. We'll talk about the four levers for farm success, which are quality, brand, price, and convenience. We'll hear from outside industry experts and producers like you to delight your customers, save time, and to increase your direct farm sales and business. We're glad you're here. Welcome to the Direct Farm Podcast. We've got a terrific conversation for you today with FARFA, also known as the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. I am delighted to welcome Judith McGarry, the Executive Director for the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance. Welcome, Judith. Thank you, Alyssa. I'm glad to be on. Great to have you here. So I guess to get started, uh, tell us a little bit more about the history of FARFA. So FARFA was created just over 15 years ago um, as a response to the National Animal ID System, which was a USDA plan to electronically tag and track every livestock animal in the country. At the time, I was an attorney juggling being a lawyer and being a farmer. And when I read the documents for the program, I recognized that this was going to be extremely destructive for sustainable livestock farmers because of the way it was written. We looked around and frankly, there wasn't any other group fighting it. So I got together with some other farmers and ranchers who I respected and said, let's do something about this. And we created FARFA to fight the NAIS. Thank you so much for just giving us that brief history and that background and to know that it was started by farmers too, because you have that experience on that side and you're able to speak to, you know, this is a way that we can change or we can go about something that will benefit all of us. So from that perspective, looking to now, how has FARFA as an organization evolved over the years and what types of farms do you support? So we, from the beginning, were about, have been about small-scale, sustainable farms selling locally and regionally. Many of our farms sell direct to consumer. Many of them also do it to, you know, small-scale independent grocers or restaurants, but within the local, you know, community with short supply and distribution chains. So when you're looking at all of your members across the board. I'm sure from time to time you survey them, you keep in touch with them, you see what's working. Okay, this is great information that we can continue to provide to you. Here's an area of improvement as well. So what are some of the beneficial aspects of FARFA membership? There's three categories. One is the one-on-one consultations. You know, we have members who just need somebody who's got some clue about what on earth to even start. I mean, honestly, so one of the things we can do, I'll go back. You know, when I say we don't know the regs in every area, you know, even in Texas, I'll admit, every so often someone comes up with something and I'm like, you know, that's a really good question. I don't know the law on that, you know, specific type of product being sold in that specific channel. Here's how we can figure this out. Because there really are these basic, simple steps. Well, they're simple once you know them as to how to work through the regulatory and legal system. But people aren't taught this and the regulators won't teach you it either. So, you know, that the one-on-one consultation where we can either we have an answer or we can help you figure out how to find it is huge benefit that I know I I get a lot of positive feedback from our folks on the value of that. There's also a, a very diffuse benefit, but an important one, which is you're supporting the organization that has, for instance, kept the farmers from having to comply with regulations. FDA's estimate of what it would cost for a small farm to comply with the produce safety regulation was in the 20s to $30,000 range per year. 
The work we do saves farmers immense amounts of money from having, you know, from the prevention of bad regulations that they would have to be complying with. And then the last is, you know, information and support generally. We put out a quarterly newsletter. We're letting people know what's going on. We teach them how to be effective advocates for themselves. We put on an annual conference that has information on everything from how to be, you know, raising livestock in your crops to also, you know, the financial and the marketing and all of these aspects that go into success for a small farm or food business. Tell us more about your conference. So the conference, this will be our 15th year. It's our third year partnering with the Small Producers Initiative at Texas State University, which is where now it's, you know, physically it's held is in San Marcos, Texas, since we're partnering with the university there. We got our fingers crossed hard for an in-person event the first week of August. Mm-hmm. And we do have backup plans for an outdoor event in October because I, I believe in contingency planning and after mm-hmm. last year, one way or another, it's going to be in person. It's either going to be in August in, indoors at Texas State University or it'll be outdoors, you know, end of October at a location we're working with. It's a great place. I mean, everyone I think has been to a conference or another. And one of the things that's true, I think on all of these conferences is just the opportunity to connect with the community and just come away and realize you're not the only lunatic who thinks that farming this way and and marketing this way is a good idea. And I think that's a huge value in addition to all the information you can learn about the full spectrum of, you know, how you can improve your business, how you can improve your farming. And we, of course, being Farfa, touch on, you know, we have sessions on the policy and the regulatory and how we can change the whole system that we're all working in. I love how you touched on the saving money aspect of it. But I think in addition to that, you're saving time, which also translates to money, but being able to have the resources, the educational content, these conferences, are you finding that a lot of your members, once they feel empowered, they have those resources, they're able to act quicker and to know how to have those conversations with regulators? When I started, I had no clue what was going on. But what's great is watching it go from there to, you know, then I run into them at a conference. They're like, oh, yeah, this happened and this is how I handled it. And they never even had to pick me. They never even picked up the phone to call me this time because they understood and they felt confident enough to handle the situation themselves. And and that's great. I mean, that that's just one of the best feelings. That's terrific. Maybe, Sharon, I'm a little curious about your personal experience because you're a farmer as well. So when you first started and going into working for FARFA as well, founding this organization, what was your personal experience working through with the legislature, regulators, <laughs> navigating this environment? And feel free to take time. I think there's two things that stand out for me. One was just the level that I didn't understand the barriers. You know, when I started, and here I was a lawyer, you would you would think that I would I would understand that. But I was kind of like, we're doing the right thing. You know, we're farming in a way that certainly is causing no problem for our neighbors. I mean, there's no noise, there's no odor problem, there's no runoff. We're providing healthy food. We're selling it face to face with these people who wanted desperately you know we're healing the earth we're treating our animals well i mean who couldn't love us and 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 then i realized well oops apparently there is this whole huge world of large corporations who really don't love us at all 
And they worked for decades to develop a regulatory scheme and teach regulators to be scared of us and think we're the problem. That wasn't a quick realization. I mean, that's not a statement I make casually. It is a statement I make after 15 years of really watching these dynamics. I'll even use a specific example of a bill that we're doing right now. We're trying to get ungraded eggs to be able to be sold to restaurants and retailers. Well, you know, USDA's own materials, you know, it's all of the science and, and even regulatory statements are that grading has nothing to do with food safety. It doesn't address foodborne illness. It's, it's a marketing issue. And I watch the industry and I literally can hear the lobbyists, you know, these are the conversations I hear him saying, having with legislators. Well, yes, technically there's no foodborne illness, you know, food safety aspect, but what if those ungraded eggs from those farmers cause an outbreak and it causes a problem, you know, blowback for our industry. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I'm really having trouble with this logic. You just admitted it's not a foodborne illness outbreak, but you really are doing your damnedest to convince these legislators that it actually is a food, you know, a food safety issue and they're gonna be hurting people if they let our small farmers have this opportunity. And that is the conversation we hear over and over and over in all sorts of areas. And so we have to have an effective voice in response. We have to be there talking about why what we're doing is something everyone should love, why what we're doing is good for the planet, good for human health, good for animal welfare. Because if we don't, we're going to get run over. Hmm. And we've seen it and we've gotten run over many, many times over the decades and still occasionally now because it takes time to build that power and be able to be an effective voice and counter. In this time too, like you mentioned, some of your membership, they're consumers, they're supporters as well. So I'm sure having people on the other side to be able to speak to, you know, I care where my food comes from. I wanna buy local from a family farmer in my area. That helps speak to the importance of sustainability and taking care of the land and all the, those aspects that you mentioned as well. Absolutely. And that's one of the things we encourage our farmers is to not, not feel like they have to fight things alone. One of the things, you know, if, if you're selling direct, one of the things you've already learned is how to build relationships with your customers. You know, that's part of being a direct marketing farmer. Well, if there's an issue, a regulatory issue, use those relationships. And, you know, that's not a bad thing. These people who buy food from us as farmers want us to stay in business they don't they don't want their farmers going out of business they don't want our farmers having to spend time or spend money and have you know on things that shouldn't be happening give them the opportunity to step up and help and and be part of this movement in that way are you finding within the past year that a lot of the farms and ranchers are having a closer relationship with their buyers and consumers as people kind of start to buy more local or have you noticed a shift or a change like you mentioned with um, people being more aware or more concerned about where does my food come from? I think what I'm seeing is the beginnings. I wouldn't say it's necessarily stronger relationships, it's more relationships. Mm -hmm. So we, we've had for a long time, you know, sort of the hardcore local buying community. And then what happened with COVID is all of a sudden, like a lot of the rest of the country was like, oh no, wait, grocery store shelves don't magically fill themselves? But what? <laughs> and, and some segment of them went, 
I think I've heard about this farm, you know, just outside town. I, I need to go check this out. And so I don't know that those are strong relationships yet. It takes time to build strong relationships, but I think they have the potential to be. I remember reading about how Target and other companies spend a lot to try to identify when somebody is about to have a baby. Because when there's a big shift in someone's life, you can permanently change their buying habits. Like it's the opportunity to, that, you know, their habits are about to get broken because they're about to become new parents. And if you can catch them then, you can make a loyal target buyer out of them. In, in some ways, that's the same situation here. We had a lot of people whose habits were deeply disrupted. I don't make light of it in any way. I mean, COVID was, was so disruptive on so many levels for our, everyone in this country. And there's an opportunity in that. There's an opportunity because it broke people out of their patterns, out of their habits. And now we have to build the relationships and help them to understand not only that the conventional food system is fragile, as they saw, but look at all of the great things that a local resilient food system can offer. I think that's so important to focus on resilience because I think, like you mentioned this past year, no one was prepared. We were all, you know, caught off guard and trying to figure out a way to support, you know, local business, especially local farmers in this time and knowing grocery store shelves, you know, they're empty. What do we do now? And there's, you know, that sort of panic there. So among your members, what would you say was a common thread or a conversation that you would have this past year, just reflecting back on the pandemic, trying to figure out next steps and how to navigate this uncertain time. A lot of our farmers have struggled with how much certainty to put into these new relationships. Do you scale up? Do you take this opportunity? Do you assume that that customer base is gonna stay there? And I think that equation is different for each one. I don't think there's a single answer that, that's gonna apply for every farmer. I think you have to assess those new customers and what the lay of the land is in your, in your area as to what percentage of them are going to stay with you as things return to normal. And I think by now people are already getting a good sense of that. But you know, that was the big question, I think March, April, May, June, like, what do I make of this demand level and, and, and what can I, what do I do with it? There's certainly still, even now, there's this very significant continued interest in, in more resilient foods. And I've seen our farmers talking a lot more with people, doing steps also like diversifying more and making sure, you know, trying to put themselves in a position where they have a larger offer, set of offerings so that they're able to provide people with more of a grocery experience. You know, diversification has always been something we've talked about in our movement, and I think it's stronger now. People are seeing this real advantage of, well, we have this opportunity to get these customers to stay with us if we can keep providing them with the range of foods that they're looking for, which can also mean moving into value-added, moving into, you know, and this is where the cottage food laws that are in almost every state come in handy because you can take your products and make value added products without necessarily having to invest in a commercial kitchen and expensive permits. You know, you can try that out, find out what appeals to your customers. So we've always encouraged that sort of diversification. And, and I think it's, you know, even more important now in terms of capturing and holding that customer base. I, I think we found on our end as well that diversifying your products, the value added products, not only what can you raise on your farm, but also other farms that you can partner with and not being afraid of those partnerships or collaborating with other businesses in the area to know that there's benefit to that. 
I feel like in this time, especially buyers are looking for that convenience and they're looking for, like you said, that one-stop shop, the grocery store experience through these farms, these local farms. So knowing that that's an option, trying to have the buyers be able to have that need, but also the farmers. Our movement started heavily on a very much sort of go it alone attitude. And, and to some extent that's inherent almost in farming. My husband and I, I mean, there's just so many things that happen on your farm and you have to deal with them as they come up. So if you aren't at least to some extent a go it alone person, you're probably not going to be in farming. You know, it's just, it's the nature of farming, but we do need it to also be about community. We need to strike that best of both worlds where the, the rugged individuality, the go it alone is certainly a part of farming. But let's not feel like we have to be everything and do everything ourselves. Let's work with our neighbors. Let's work with other farmers. They may not physically be neighbors, but you've got some in your region. You, you have fellow producers at the farmer's markets. And let's also look at it again as a community. And how do we engage our customers so that they're not just customers? How, you know, and for FARFA, you know, looking at what we do, how do you engage with your elected officials, whether it is local or state or federal? Let's look at this and, and look at the whole community impact of what we're doing. And then I also love how you touched on to the, the scale side of how that's a big decision. Not every farm is going to immediately grow at scale year over year because it is a large investment. But for those who are looking to do that and expand their reach, have you noticed that they've implemented new business strategies like subscriptions or CSA boxes or trying to figure out a way to build that recurring cash flow on that side of things too? Yeah, I think certainly that the, there's the boxes, you know, whether it's a CSA subscription or just some other sort of, of, of regular box, mixed offerings have definitely ramped up and people have seen a lot of good response to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Especially the spring and summer months right now. I know a lot of people are going to the farmer's markets are looking for those options as well. So thinking ahead now, I know we talked about the past year, how uncertain it was, but even looking into the future, no one has that crystal ball. We're like, oh, we know what's going to happen in a month or two months from now. So when you're talking to your members, how are you preparing them um, for the future? Just being able to pivot or anticipate, you know, something that the unknowns of what could happen. In their Part of it is what we've already said, which is diversification, just having different options, including in how and who you sell to. Our members who are hardest hit by COVID were the ones that were heavily reliant on the restaurant sales. They built their model around being the, re the source for the local sourcing restaurants. And those guys got hit the hardest. They were able to, to pivot and, because there was such demand for local food that they were able to open it. But if there hadn't been this huge influx of new customers coming in looking for local food, they'd have been in, in incredible trouble. So diversifying not just the product offerings, but how, you know who you sell to and how you think about selling to them without pulling yourself into a million different pieces. So I do want to, you know, the, the caveat is you, you do have to have some sanity and the ability to not feel like you're spending 24 seven creating every possible new niche that you have. It's a balance that you're going to have to strike. I'd also say, you know, we're encouraging people to think long, long term about what sort of changes are needed to make these systems work better. This goes back almost to your very first question about what Farfa did when we started and what we do now. You know, the first several years of what we did, what first with Animal ID and then with the Food Safety Modernization Act, 
were really serious damage control. How do we keep, you know, first USDA and then Congress and FDA from coming up with regs that are just going to decimate livestock and produce farms? And we're still watching for those things. Don't get me wrong. Unfortunately, it's not like we can say, oh, it's done. It's never coming back. But now what we look at more is where are the roadblocks that could be removed? And how do we prioritize those? Because we're not going to be able to fix all of them. We're not going to be able to change all of it. Where are the pressure points? Where are the bottlenecks that are keeping people from being able to either expand their business, to have security that their business is stable even and, and, and sustainable over the long run? Where, where are those problems? And we have that conversation with our members a lot. And, and I think we need people to, for, I mean, I'd love for people to engage with us, you know, with FARFA, but also, you know, whether you're a member or not a member, do that analysis in your own head and go talk to your legislators about it. Go talk to them now while it's still fresh in their heads that the conventional food system didn't really work very well in a crisis. Before they forget that, before that becomes too distant of a memory, go to them and say, you know what, when those grocery store shelves were empty, I was still able to sell food locally. I was still feeding this community. And you know, I'd be able to do a much better job at that if I didn't need a grading license for my eggs, if we improved access to small scale processors and I could use a custom processor, whatever it is, you know, those are two that I hear a lot, but whatever it is, take that to them now while it's fresh in their heads and let's start trying to hit and remove some of those bottlenecks for our movement. Looking back on this past year or even within the last few months, do you have a farmer success story in mind that you can share with us? I laugh a little bit because the last two months have been Texas legislative session. So, you know, I, I literally have moved out of my home into, you know, a place near the Capitol because that's all I do. Uh, so changing your time frame a little bit, let me answer that. I'll share a couple of stories. One that predates it quite a bit, but is a good story about the impact people can have at any time by approaching their legislators. I had been trying to get this bill introduced about grading eggs and, and allowing the sale of ungraded eggs and had been just having a tough time finding a bill sponsor who was like, eggs grading? What? Legislators are like, what are you talking about, huh? And, and no one was interested. And then literally I talked to a farmer and he had this great business plan. He'd gotten started. He had no idea about this grading requirement and he ran smack dab, you know, headfirst into this barrier. And it was about to just completely undercut the whole way he was building his business. We talked and I was like, okay, here's your legislator's name. Here's their staffer. Here's what you want to talk to them about. Go talk to them. And the bill gets filed, wow. you know, and now we have a whole battle in front of us to try to get it passed. But that's, you know, literally it was that constituent call that made that legislator go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. That Now I understand why FARFA has been tapping on my shoulder asking me to sponsor this bill. Okay, I'll do it. We also have seen, um, not so much for farmers, but I do think it shows the difference COVID made. There's been a bill for several sessions that keeps dying and has really sort of been a joke at the Capitol about backyard chickens. 
you know, allowing people to have backyard chickens without restrictions by the cities. And it's been literally kind of laughed at and sort of one of these like, oh, isn't this cute and funny? And then this session, we brought it as a home food security bill about gardens, chickens, rabbits, literally people being able to raise food for themselves. And the attitude towards it is completely different. It, it is not a joke. People are not making fun of it. There's opposition and we may or may not be able to get it passed, but there's also very significant support from people who see it as a serious issue. And the reason they see it as a serious issue is because of what's happened, you know, in the last year with COVID and the food system. So, you know, I think there really is a shift and we're seeing that at the federal level, we're seeing more interest in antitrust issues because of the meat packers. We're seeing more interest in, in meat processing for small scale producers. There is an, an awareness that we absolutely have an opportunity that I certainly haven't seen anything like it in my 15 years of working on policy and food. That's terrific. And to know that it sounds like people are more open to having the conversation, whereas maybe before that door was closed. So being able to have farmers, you know, want to speak out and feel empowered to speak out. And then on the opposite side, you know, having the legislators, the regulators being open to listening and to, to having that dialogue back and forth as well. It feels weird to say this because of, again, it's been such a difficult year on so many levels. But I am more optimistic about the potential for really making significant changes to support, you know, small local farms and regenerative agriculture than I've been at any time that I've done this, been doing this work. That's really inspiring. It's so important for people to be passionate, you know, about where their food comes from. And then for the producers to be like, great, we have that food, let's sell it to you and be able to have, like you said, that community aspect on the government level, but also through consumers and producers too, to be able to interact cohesively together. So before we sign off, is there one final piece of advice that you would like to share with farmers? get involved. I know farming is long hours and hard work. I, I know it. I live it. It is one of the hardest jobs out there. And it is so vital for our farmers to be in these conversations, to be talking not just about the food they sell, as important as that is, but talking about the difference it makes for their neighbors, for their rural communities, for the human health, whatever the aspects are that called you into this. And we all have reasons we went into this that we're passionate about. Be sharing those reasons also and, and get engaged at whatever level it is, local, state, federal, because your path will be easier if we can make those changes. It'll never be easy to farm. That's not in the definition of farming, but we, we can make it less difficult with more farmer voices coming forward and talking about why we should need these changes and what those changes are. And no one knows better than the farmers themselves what changes are actually needed. And I guess I, I have one final question for you, personal question, why farming? What, what is it about farming that you're passionate about so for me, it started for the environmental reasons. I was an environmentalist, but I always struggled as an environmentalist with just the reality of, and a philosophical belief that we can't just shut people out of nature. It's not going to work. And I didn't think it was the right path. And so much of uh, traditional environmentalism was about sort of separating people from, from the natural world. There was just a lot of it. And so when I found sustainable agriculture, the first thing that called to me was this amazing opportunity of healing land 
fund, having biodiverse, rich ecosystems that were providing food for humanity. I mean, that's, that's incredible. And then when you layer on top of that, that the same system, the same way to farm makes the food more nutritious for people. It helps small businesses. It can reinvigorate local economies. It's more humane for the animals. You know, it's more natural for the animals. And you just start ticking this list off and you're like, this isn't a zero sum game. Thanks to the energy we get from the sun and the ability of plants to harvest that energy, this isn't a zero sum game. What we can do with this type of agriculture is you know, heal soil, heal plants, heal animals, heal people, heal communities. And I don't really know of any other area where you can look at something and go, there's no downside. <laughs> you know, the, the only downside is some corporations lose their profit margin. And, and that really isn't going to keep me up at night. I hadn't planned to do the policy side. I hadn't planned to do the lobbying. I wanted to do the farming. But then, as I said, I came to this realization that we had to be involved or we weren't going to be able to do the farming. And so now I can be just as passionate about the lobbying because it's the necessary um, precondition to being able to do that type of farming. That's great. And just to hear your heart behind it as well, too, as a farmer, but also on the policy side, like you mentioned, how that is the necessary part of getting to you know the, the root of it all or kind of where it all starts for everybody in the farming. So thank you so much, Judith, for joining us today. Great having you. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I also want to thank the entire membership at FARFA. Here at Barn to Door, we are delighted to partner with organizations like FARFA to support family and farmers in all 50 states. For more information on FARFA, you can visit farmandranchfreedom.org. And to learn more about Barn to Door, including access to numerous free resources and best practices for your farm, you can go to barntodoor.com resources. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time.